The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So this is a painting called Ecce Homo, um, which is Latin for Behold the Man. And it shows uh, this, this scene in the, in the life of Jesus shortly after he'd been arrested, where Pontius Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and he's asking them, what do you want me to do with him? So Jesus, is, he's, he's before the crowd. He's asking them to make a decision. Like, is he the son of God or not? What does this person deserve? What's, what's special about him? What do you want me uh, to do with him? And, and they need, he, he needs them to make a decision. And what's interesting about it is, if you think about it, at that point in the story, all that the crowd has to go by is the, the life and the teachings and, and the birth and the miracles of Jesus, his, his lifestyle. At this point in this story, there's no, there's no death, right? He hasn't died on the cross. There's no resurrection, right? There's no empty tomb yet. There's no, there's no Bible at this point in the story, but he's asking them to make a decision uh, as they behold the man. What does he deserve? What are we going to do with him? Uh, this is an important question, obviously. This is something that every one of us, every day, we have to make a decision about what we're going to do with Jesus as we behold him. And um, through time, there have been lots of different answers. Uh, one group I'll tell you about is, is the Gnostics. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Gnostics, it's spelled with a G at the front. And the Gnostics are a group who are, they begin from a place of, of dualism. Um, they, uh, they believe that the, uh, the meaning of life, like the, the whole quest that we're on is to figure out this secret knowledge and like unlock the secrets of God and we can become like him. That's what the Gnostics believed. So they're dualistic in the sense that um, spiritual stuff is really important. Spiritual stuff is good. Physical stuff, earthy, human stuff is, is not important. It's not, it's not uh, a big deal. So we need to focus on heaven. We need to focus on understanding the secrets uh, of, of heaven and, and of God and sort of unlocking the code. But, uh, but life stuff, practical needs, those things sort of get in the way. The Gnostics taught that God would never come to earth. That was way too beneath him. Uh, and so they came up with their own stories and their, they had their own gospel accounts. Like if you've ever heard of the gospel of Thomas, uh, it's, a, it's written by Gnostics. If you've ever heard of the gospel of Judas, uh, it was written by Gnostics. And it reflects what the, what the Gnostics taught. Now, there's, there's nobody that I know today who would ever identify themselves as a Gnostic. But I've got to be honest and say that I, I've wrestled with this same dualism. And I, and I actually see this this. Gnosticism practiced huge in, in, the, in the church. Um, in church world, there is a tendency to say, spiritual stuff matters. Uh, you know, let's, we're going to get our doctrine right. We're going to be part of this, the right tribe. We're going to be, right, be part of the, the right church. And the rest of the things will sort themselves out. Practical needs, social issues, political issues, those things are less important because we need to sort out um, our, the spiritual stuff, we've got to get that stuff down and at the cost of the other things. And, and I just want to say at the outset, that is not the way of Jesus. Okay? Um, the, the nature of Jesus is one of the most hotly like, de- debated issues for the first like, five centuries of the church. Think of that. For like five centuries, Christians are debating and trying to figure out who is Jesus and like, what are we going to do with him? And... and um, 
That's what the, you know, that's at the center of the creeds and the councils and the different discussions and, and things that are, that are happening. And they're trying to figure out what do we do with this idea that God became man. And that's what we call the incarnation. So today we're going to be talking about the incarnation. And that's the idea that God became a human being. One of the early church fathers was a guy named uh, Gregory of, Ni- of Nyssa. And if you're into church history, and I don't assume everybody here is, but if you are, he's an important guy to know because he basically chaired the committee um, at the, the Council of Nicaea where we came up with the Nicene Creed. And at the Council of Nicaea, they also sort of finalized the list of books that would be included in the, in the Bible. So he, he sort of led that group. And he said, uh, he had some really helpful things to say about, um, God's, about God's incarnation, God the Son as he came to earth. He said, God's transcendent power is not so much displayed in the vastness of heavens, of the heavens, or the luster of the stars, or the orderly arrangement of the universe, or his perpetual oversight of it, as it is in his condescension to our weak nature. We marvel at the way the sublime entered a state of lowliness, and while actually seen in it, didn't leave the heights. We marvel at the way the, the Godhead was entwined in human nature, and while becoming man, didn't cease to be God. This incarnation, this idea of God becoming a person, this, that's our focus today. This is a big deal. So we're going through the Apostles' Creed. Um, uh, we're talking about what do, we, what do we mean by these things, but not just what do we believe, but how do we believe these things? What do we do with them? And uh, when we first began, we talked about just what does it mean when we say we believe something? And then last time we were together and doing this study, it was what do we mean by when we say I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? So today we're going to be focusing on Jesus. Um, there's a lot to cover. I be, uh, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That sounds like a ton. But it's actually, we're just looking at the in, idea of incarnation. We're going to go through some of those things quickly, but just focusing on the incarnation. And again, at the bottom of the screen, you see a phone number there. As we go along, if you have questions that come up, Please do text them in, um, and I will, if I have you in my contacts list, I will not reveal your identity. Uh, we'll answer those questions just before we do the benediction at the end. Um, actually, I'll just pause uh, at this point and just invite us to pray together. Just offer up this study to the Lord. Lord, would you just uh, use this time, and I, I guess I pray at first, Lord, that you would just open up our hearts, and it may be that we need to change our minds about some things. It might be that we have... Um, we have refused to behold Jesus uh, because other things took priority. And I pray that you would just enable us to have this time and this space to listen to you as you speak through your word. And I pray you would use me. In Jesus' name, amen. So, to begin, the creed tells us that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, every Christmas we talk about this, how Jesus was visited by, or Mary was visited by an angel who reveals that uh, she's going to give birth to the Savior. And Mary's response is, how can this be? Since I am a virgin, the, angels, the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is going to do a miracle where he's going to take the, God's nature and human nature and he's going to put them together in one person, in one body, and that, he's going to put that into Mary's womb. So Jesus is going to be one person with two natures. 
All right? So you and I have one nature. We have a human nature. When you become a follower of Jesus, you know, when you, when you turn from trusting in yourself and you invite him to be your Lord, you are born again. Some of the language we use is that you're, you're a new creation. But you still have one nature. You have a human nature. And Jesus is different in that he has a full human nature and he has uh, the nature of God. He has so full deity, full humanity. And there's lots of theological language for that but that's not important for our purposes today. What matters for us today is that Jesus was not God wearing a disguise. Okay? Jesus was not God pretending to be a human, wearing the mask of, like a mask of skin or something like that. Nor was Jesus a person who figured out the secret to becoming God, like some, some people taught. Um, in Philippians 2, we read that, uh, that though he, being Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the whole time he was equal with God, but he didn't leverage his God powers for his own purposes. He used his, whatever powers he did use, he used for other people to, to serve them. And, and that's the miracle of incarnation. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Spirit. That the Spirit took the, the like God nature, human nature, put them together in one, one person. Now the Creed also tells us that he was born of the Virgin Mary. So again, we talk about this at Christmas time. Um, it's really important that Mary and Joseph had not yet uh, slept together, okay? Um, they hadn't, they, it, 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 so the virgin birth is a, kind of these, one, these really, what's one of these really important teachings within uh, the Christian faith. And I bet if I asked you, why is the virgin birth important, I could probably predict you what your answer would be. So the virgin birth is important because if not for the virgin birth, if Jesus is not vir- born of a virgin, he is, uh, then he, you know, he sort of inherits the sinful nature of his parents, right? Is that kind of the answer we would, we would say? see some nodding heads, yes? So, I think it's probably not as simple as that. So, um, and it comes down to this. In Bible times, especially in the New Testament, it was understood that to make a baby, um, so there are kids in the room, so let me just adapt the language here a little bit, okay? So, um, the man has, the man plants the seed in the garden. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the understanding, that the man has the baby inside him. He's got the seed. Everything that you need in order to make a baby is inside the man. And when the two sleep together and, and uh, do their thing, then the seed is planted and grows into a baby. Now, we know now, we have the advantage of, you know, a little bit of knowledge of reproductive biology. And we know that it doesn't happen that way. Sorry. Uh, what we know now is that a baby's genetics are inherited both from the father and from the mother. And the point of saying this is because um, Jesus, unless we're willing to say that Mary was sinless, this doesn't explain how Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature. I think there's, some, there's another reason uh, why the virgin birth is important. And, and I, I think, it's, I think it, it, what it means is that Jesus is set apart it means that Jesus is unique. He's set apart, and his mission is really, really important. Because when you go to the Old Testament, for example, you meet a, there's, and the New Testament, there are a few examples of these miraculous births. And the, the child that is born is set apart to do amazing things for God. So like um, Hannah, you meet in First Samuel, who couldn't have children. And she prays and prays and prays. And God answers her prayer and enables her to give birth, and she has the prophet Samuel, who's really important. And there's another woman who couldn't have children, and, and she 
um, eventually becomes pregnant with Samson, who becomes a really important judge for Israel. In the New Testament, Elizabeth is visited by an angel, and she couldn't give birth. And she ends up becoming the mother of John the Baptist. And so then uh, Mary, a virgin uh, of the line of David, visited by an angel, and she's told that she's going to have uh, a child, and she gives birth to Jesus, the Son of God. And it's like he is the ultimate prophet. It's like he's the ultimate judge. So if those others are set apart, Jesus is like, the, in, in, an, in an ultimate way, his mission, his importance uh, are revealed by the, the miraculous nature of his birth. I would also say, at the same time, um, we shouldn't miss that Jesus had to be born. Like, he had to go through birth. Some of you who have given birth in the room, or some of you who have been with someone who has, uh, you know what an earthy uh, kind of messy experience that is. And, and in Hebrews 2, we read that since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, being Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus had to be born. He had to become a full human being and have the full experience of humanity. And then Philippians 2, uh, that says that he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was born in the likeness of men. So here again, just for, for, in order for Jesus to be the Savior that we need, he couldn't just show up like an angel, all right? That, would not, that, wouldn't, um, that wouldn't make him the Savior that we needed him to be. He had to be born. He had to go through the full experience of like, learning to nurse and screaming in the middle of the night and needing his, his diaper changed and learning to walk and all, all, all of those things. Those were all essential in order for Jesus to be the Savior, the prophet, the priest that we needed him to be. And I think that's called out in the creed, that Jesus is unique and he's born. It just shows that this happened, that he is a real person. He's a real person. So from there, the creed tells us that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's this huge jump of about 30, 33 years or something like that. Um, that doesn't mean that what happened in those 30 years isn't important. It just means that that's not what the creed is for. That's what the Bible is for. So we, we come to Pontius Pilate, who is, uh, who is the, the governor of the province of Judea in the, the Roman Empire. And Pontius Pilate is this corrupt, nasty guy, and he hates Jews. He thinks that all of their religious stuff is super trivial. He wants nothing to do with them. Uh, and by the time that they bring Jesus before him to make a decision, innocent or guilty, all he wants to do is make this problem go away. Because Pontius Pilate's job is to keep Caesar happy and keep the peace in Judea. And so we read at the end of the Gospel of Matthew that when, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, like from the debate and from, the, from listening to Jesus, from talking to the crowds, when he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, Pilate took water... And he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I just think it's really important that if it were up to Pontius Pilate, he would have faded into obscurity. We would not remember his name. And the truth is, for, the, for, the, for most of history, outside of the Bible, we had no record of anybody named Pontius Pilate. Outside of the, the Jesus story, there was no reason to believe that Pontius Pilate was even real. Then in 1961, I think this is really cool, some, some ar biblical archaeologists found this stone in the city of Caesarea, which had been part of a, of a structure built and dedicated to em the, uh, the, the emperor Tiberius. 
and it's inscribed um, to Tiberius from Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So here, outside of the Bible now, you've got evidence of Pontius Pilate. And, um, and, and the thing is, I, you know, I think that there are all kinds of reasons why somebody might have doubts about the, the Jesus story. They might have doubts about the Bible. They might not know what to think about Jesus and whether this happened. At least we know that Pontius Pilate was real. We know, like, you, we, nobody made this up. Pontius Pilate was real. The early church didn't make this up. We, we, we just can't, we can't deny this. Um, this stuff happened. I think here it's also important to go, to recognize there is some irony in the creed. Like, um, you know, he wanted to wash his hands of this whole thing. He wanted to wash his hands of Jesus, be forgotten forever. And the creed is like, not so fast. Because right in, right in the words of the creed, we, we say that, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And that's just, that is, that's so true. Pilate's not going to get off the hook. We recognize that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It was Pilate who refused to stand up to the crowds. It was Pilate who decided that Jesus was going to be crucified. He agreed to have him killed. And so Jesus was crucified. He was crucified. And this is, this is awful. We talk about this, obviously, quite a bit. Um, in Mark 15, it says that uh, they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots to decide uh, what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, one thing we haven't talked about is what crucifixion is and what it's like. Crucifixion is state-sponsored torture, and the Romans had perfected it. It's like the worst form of execution like, that you know, people have been able to uh, imagine, and it, it worked kind of like this. Like, if you were convicted of a serious crime, you would be given this long wooden crossbeam, the horizontal piece, and you would have to carry that. And it, it was larger or smaller depending on, on the person's size and, and their strength. Um, and, and you would have to carry that to the place where you would be crucified. And at, the, at that place, you would be either, you'd have your, either your, nails, your hands nailed to the cross or tied to the cross. And then you'd be hoisted up and attached to the post. And you would hang there vertically. And um, we've seen this image in all kinds of Western art. We've seen, you know, and... and one of the things I think is, is interesting, too, is just how the feet are nailed together with one long nail that goes through the tops uh, of the feet. So in most of our art, it's represented like this. And that's awful enough, right? Now, not long ago, some archaeologists found uh, an ossuary, like a, a box of bones. And in that box of bones, they found um, the heel bone of this person who had been crucified which showed that the ways that we understood how crucifixion worked, they need to be corrected. So that rather than two feet being, the two feet being nailed together with one, nail, one long nail through the top, um, the, the, uh, the feet were separated and the heel, the heel bones had nails go through the sides like that. Meaning that when Jesus was crucified, this is an artist's uh, rendering, when Jesus was crucified... All of his weight hung from his hands. He had to pull himself up in order to take a breath. And he had to let himself go. And eventually his strength gave out. And after six hours, he died. He really did die. Um, probably by suffoc suffocation. Um, but eventually his strength gave out and he finally died. Uh, nobody survived crucifixion. Ever. 
All four Gospels tell us that he died. This is like the, the center point of the Christian faith. Jesus didn't pretend to be dead. He actually died. Luke tells us uh, that when that happened, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. Jesus actually died. And this is super important. This is different from what the Gnostics claim, which is that, that God did a, a miracle of confusing the people. And so, so that, that God, um, he, uh, he confused the minds of the soldiers. And uh, what ended up happening was that they crucified a man named Simon of Cyrene, who's also part of the story. That's what the Gnostics believe. A few centuries after that, Islam picked up this idea. And I don't know if you know this or not, but one of, the, one of the popular ideas within Islam related to Jesus is that it wasn't actually Jesus who died on the cross, but it was Judas. And that God did a similar act of confusing people. Uh, and, it was, and, and, and he switched Jesus for Judas, and, he put Ju- and it, was, it was Judas who ended up on the cross. So the creed says absolutely not. And this is super, super important that it was actually, Jesus died. There was no substitution of anybody for Jesus. Jesus died uh, full stop. He died, and he was buried. He was buried. So, Mark, four, Mark 15. Um, when Pontius Pilate learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen shroud. Taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud, and he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, um, and here, look, it's just so important that the, we, we recognize the creed leaves no room for doubt that Jesus really lived, he really physically suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. Like, this stuff happened in time and space and in places where you can go and see those, those locations. If you go over to Jerusalem today, you can find the remains of the court where Pontius Pilate decided to have Jesus crucified. You can go and find the place where it's believed that where Jesus was, the hill where Jesus is believed to have been crucified. You can see these spots now. There are huge monuments and churches built on those locations, but you can go to the place where it's believed Jesus' body was laid, the tomb where his body was laid. You can go to these places and see for yourselves um, what it was like. This stuff happened. The incarnation is, is true. And stepping back... Um, Stepping back, I think it's so important that when the apostles put the creed together, it was important for them that the church understand that when we talk about the suffering and the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus, that we put that together with Jesus being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. These things which very few people saw or knew about are just as true and just as important as these other things that, lots, that, that other people would have seen at the time. The Apostles' Creed says it's all true. It's all important. Um, and, and there are witnesses. John the Apostle uh, is a witness of it. He, he said, and we heard this read earlier, that um, the Word of God, Jesus, He became flesh and He dwelt among us and we've seen His glory. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. We didn't make this up. We've seen it. That's what incarnation is all about. Now, just as we've been doing in this series, we ask, what do you do with this? Why is this important? Like, how do you handle, or what do you do with this idea of Jesus' incarnation? What do we do with that? I want to tell you a story. Um, a personal story. This, uh, I, I'm learning that 
for a lot of my Christian life, I was actually pretty Gnostic. Okay? I'm going to go back to when I was about 20 years old. And I'm not even sure what I believe about Jesus yet. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the Bible. I don't know much about the Christian faith. But I'm hanging out with a lot of people who do. And very early on, they give me a microphone and a leadership role and a Bible. And they ask me to stand at the front of the room and, and lead and teach and do stuff for them. And um, it was, I was like, well, who's going to turn that down? So I did. Who's going to say no to that? So at about the same time, I'm introduced to the works of some really great teachers and theologians um, who are just solid. And I don't know much about Jesus at this point. I don't know much about the Word. But these teachers do. And I knew that as long as I said the things that they teach and, and believe, and as long as I sort of stay within their camp, I'm pretty safe. And God's probably going to use me. And that, is how I, that was sort of my view for a really, really long time. That was my approach to the Christian faith and to leadership roles that I had. And, and these teachers had a lot to say about God's glory and about God's bigness and God's sovereignty. And, and very early on, I was confronted by this idea that everything that God does, he does for his glory. That everything God does, he does for his glory. And there were times in my most honest moments when I would think, man, like, do I matter in this? Like, if God, if God is doing everything for his glory, what does he think of me? What does he need me for? Like, am I just a spoke in the wheel of this thing? And if, if I disappoint him, is he just going to replace me with somebody else because I'm, I'm not that important? What does God think about me? How does he feel about me? I know the Bible says he loves me. Does he love me because I'm part of his creation? Or does he love me because I'm, because I'm me? And uh, I never said any of that out loud. Um, I ignored it. Just like many people do. And I, and I wonder if some of us can relate to that here. Because I, I thought to myself, I am one person. I'm just one part of this whole thing. My needs and my heart and my mental health, these things can wait. Because God has to be glorified. There's important work to do. Right? And then, as time went on, I had an important job. And I, had, I got married. And then I had, I had kids. And I had responsibilities. And, and I didn't have time for beholding Jesus. There was important work to do. There was important, uh, important messages to share with people. And I didn't know it, but I was a total Gnostic. I was a total Gnostic. And I was letting my theology, my view of God, be an excuse for ignoring what's going on around me and what was going on inside me. Now, it's important to say, none of those teachers that I was reading, nobody that I was hanging out with, would have ever endorsed what I was doing. This was not their, this, none of them would, ever, would have ever said that God, God's glory means that you don't matter, or he doesn't love you, or, any, or anything like that. That's just how I sort of put it together in, in, internally. All right? But fast forward to today. I just want you to know, not only uh, do I feel like I'm really learning now who Jesus is, I'm learning what God is like like, I'm beholding him. I, I hope that you are too. I'm beholding him, and I, re- I actually like what I'm seeing. Like, as I, as I engage Jesus in Scripture, as I spend time with him in prayer, I, I love Jesus, and I like him. As I behold him, I love him, and I like him. And I just think that is such a, a big deal. Just so you know, it's a little bit scary. 
I don't know if, how weird this is for you to hear that, that your pastor is like learning new things about Jesus. But, uh, you know, the more that I behold Jesus, there are some things that uh, I used to be really, really sure about, which are, which are kind of less clear for me. Some things that were black and white, which are a little bit less clear for me now. There were some things that uh, weren't very clear for me in the past, some things that I wasn't sure about that I'm beginning to become really, really rooted in that are becoming really, really important for me. And it's a really cool journey as I behold Jesus and I'm, and I'm repenting and turning from being a Gnostic. See, I was like, I was like Philip. Hannah read earlier that um, Philip asked Jesus, you know, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Like, quit playing around. Quit holding out on us. Jesus, like, it's great spending time with you and everything, but just tell us what God is like. Put the system together. Help us to know how all of this works. And Jesus says, no, like, you don't get it. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's not more than this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's what incarnation is about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what this is, that's what this is about. The incarnation matters. Let me say it this way. The incarnation matters because it is important to be able to say that Jesus is God. But you know what melts a hard heart? Is if you can say that God is like Jesus. Let me say that again. It is really important that everybody here understand that Jesus is God. But what's going to keep you and what's going to deepen your trust in him, what's going to soften a hard heart, is when you come to the point of being able to say, oh my gosh, God is exactly like Jesus. They don't disagree. They don't contradict. And I don't know if that's a new idea for you, but for me, that is mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. And so we got to behold Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? You behold Jesus. Okay? Do you want to know how he feels about you? You behold, behold the man. Do you want to know, is there room in the heart of God for you? Behold the man. Has he given up on you? No, behold the man. As you behold Jesus, you're faced with this decision that you've got to make. What kind of room am I going to make in my life for him? What does he deserve? What, what will I do with Jesus? Uh, and, and one of the options is you're going to surrender your life to him. And you're going to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's my mentor, my best friend and teacher. Or you'll push him away. You'll reject him and have nothing to do with him because he asks too much. Or you sort of superficially attach yourself to this thing. Maybe one foot in, one foot out, and you'll know lots of things about the Christian faith. You'll know lots of people who know him, but you won't make the space and the time personally to behold the man. And just so you know, both of those are just two different ways of saying no to Jesus. It's just two different ways of holding Jesus uh, at arm's length. And I know that there are lots of reasons why somebody might do that. Believe me, I know that, that this happens and you have friends and family who, who do this. You might be doing this today. There are all kinds of reasons why people hold Jesus at arm's length. I just want to say, if that's what you're doing, if that's what your friends are doing, it can't be because God doesn't care. It can't be because he doesn't love you. It can't be because he doesn't have a place in his heart for you. He loves you. He has always loved you. There was never a time when he didn't love you. 
There won't be a time when he, he won't love you. Um, and I'll close with this from a, a theologian I've, I've come to respect called Brian Zond. He says, God is like Jesus. Jesus is the message of God. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the full and faithful witness to how God is to be understood. Jesus didn't come to save us from God. He didn't come to save us from God. Jesus came to reveal God as Savior. Jesus didn't come to enable God to love us. Jesus came to reveal God as love. Jesus didn't come to reconcile God to the world. Jesus came to reconcile the world to God. If Jesus' life is the definition of God, the, def- the defining moment of Jesus' life is the cross. Thank you for listening.